Welcome to the Keeping the Nostalgia Live show, where we interview athletes, coaches, entertainers, artists, musicians, authors, and many more on both our podcast and YouTube channels. We discuss their upbringing, careers, and what they're doing today. We document the past so the future can remember. Please like, follow, subscribe, and share our programs. Got a guest you'd like to hear? Contact us and try and get them on the program. We have over 200 episodes recorded, so please enjoy. Stories can't be remembered unless they are told. Someone asked me one time how I get my guest ideas. It's easy. Those I've had memories of in my lifetime. In a weird sort of way, it brings closure to certain times in my life. A history major at Indiana State University, I feel it's my way of preserving history for future generations to remember. Welcome to the program. Welcome to the Keeping the Nostalgia Live show. I am your host, Billy Powell. You're watching this on YouTube. Uh, for those of you listening, uh, you're probably listening to this on anchor.fm backslash KTNA, which stands for Keeping the Nostalgia Live. And if you are watching this on YouTube, which is the Keeping the Nostalgia Live show, please subscribe so you know about our upcoming programs. We've got over 200 shows from Rick Mount to Gene Katie to our guest today which is a 40-year broadcasting veteran. Uh, and, I mean, if I go through the list of what he's done, what he, do, what he does, and all of that, uh, the show would be over. So we're going to hop right to it. It is Scott Hoke. Scott, thank you so much for spending some time with us to help keep the nostalgia alive and talk about basketball to cars to golf to the Indianapolis 500 to Ben Davis Giants and Butler Bulldogs. Thank you so much. Hey, it's my pleasure, Billy. Thanks for having me on the show. So where did you grow up at? What part of Indianapolis? I grew up on the west side of Indy uh, and in the Ben Davis area. You used to be able to see my house from the interstate on 465, right around 10th Street, but they built up some of those sound uh, sound retention or sound uh, walls along the interstate there, so you can't see it anymore. But I was a, a west sider all my life, Ben Davis kid, and actually went to... 12 years of school, I guess 13, K through 12 on the same block at basically the corner of 10th Street and Girls School Road out west. Uh, that's awesome. What what did you, what was your first love? Or did, did, you, did you love listening to stuff on the radio, watching uh, events on TV? Did you enjoy sports first? What was your kind of first love as a youngster? Well, that's a that's a good question. And actually, it was I I was fascinated with radio back when I was a little kid. And in fact, I remember on more than one occasion, uh, you know, my we would be coming home from church on a, you know, Wednesday night or a Sunday afternoon or whatever. And I'd want my mom and dad to turn the radio up in the car and I'd stick my head back on the package tray and they wouldn't want to turn it up too loud because, of course, they were my parents. Um, but I, I just had them turn it up a little bit and I would stick my head back on the package tray and and listen to what those guys were doing and what they were talking about. And I remember the old days of WIRE and w, uh, WIFE and, of course, WIBC back in the day. And, and this was when I was probably six or seven years old. And I thought, wow, that would be so cool someday to do something like that. 
but I never thought that I would actually do something like that. So it was kind of a, it was kind of a thing that was out there. And uh, I, I didn't, you know, I loved listening, listening to music. Uh, in those days, I thought I would love to be a professional baseball player, uh, played little league, played football, basketball, all kinds of stuff uh, when I was a kid, but uh, never thought that, you know, one day I would, I would end up in that field. So it's kind of cool all these years later to remember, you know, remember listening to uh, the radio and begging my parents to turn it up just a little bit more. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I had a transistor radio and I would turn it up very low and I would put it underneath my pillow to get, you know, to uh, to hide it from my parents. And uh, I would listen to Bob Lamy call the Indiana Pacer game. Dude, I'm telling you what, we, we could have been twins because I remember listening to Jerry Baker uh, during the the ABA championship series one of them that the Pacers well I don't know that they lost the deciding game but it was one of the games back in 72 or 73 uh during the playoffs and I snuck my radio under my pillow and I had it so low and they lost and I started crying and my mom came in and she said what's wrong and I said I said, I'm sorry, mom, the Pacers just lost. This is a phone, obviously, but I held up my radio and I said, the Pacers lost tonight. I'm just crushed. And she just shook her head and turned around and walked out. So <laughs> from what I understand, too, uh, your first um, Indianapolis 500 was 1973. And what a 500 to oh. start out with. Well, it's interesting. I was 10 and I don't remember all the circumstances that led us to go there. Uh, it was, of course, one of the worst 500s ever. Um, and so my dad and my grandfather went uh, that day. We sat in turn three and this was, I think, the third time they tried to run the race. And my dad may have gotten free tickets. I don't know. But we sat in turn three, and I thought it was—I thought it was the coolest thing ever. But I didn't really have any knowledge. I wasn't paying attention to to what had happened uh, previous to that to that day. Uh, and so I think it would have been on a what, was that run on a Tuesday? I should have—I should remember that it was a Tuesday, and that may be why we ended up getting free tickets somehow. But uh, yeah, now that I look back on it, I mean as you said what a what a memorable for all the wrong reasons uh first race to attend as a youngster and i'm assuming that um is is that did you just fall in love with auto racing at that point in time yeah i did and i i remember taking a field trip uh a couple of years after that we went to the old museum which is where the administration building is now and i remember taking a bunch of snapshots of of you know, these trophies and these cars that were there in the building uh, and loved every minute of that. And, you know, from where I grew up, my house was close enough that I could hear practice at the Speedway and the race at the Speedway. And also I could hear what was going on at Raceway Park with the U.S. Nationals uh, when they would fire up for practice or, or over Labor Day weekend. 
uh, their event. So, and I would, you know, the same thing with my radio. I, I had my radio out in the, in the yard uh, and I was listening to, you know, the, the voice of the 500 um, back then, which I believe would still have been Sid Collins before Paul Page took over in, in 78, I want to say. Don't quote me on that. Uh, but yeah, many of 500 listening to it on the radio in my backyard. Yeah, did you get to, at, at that young age, get to meet Tom Carnegie? Or at what point in time did you get to meet Tom Carnegie? I met Tom Carnegie for the first time, actually, when I was an intern at Channel 6. And he was just kind of getting ready to wrap up his career at Channel 6. So I met him briefly as an intern. And then uh, a number of years later, as a member of the the public address team there, got to got to know him quite a bit better and worked with him uh, on many occasions. So, yeah, definitely a legend. And everybody still talks of TC there at the Speedway. Um, I grew up a little bit before moving to Broderpool off of 1210 Winfield, which is what maybe a mile from the track. So, um, you know, we would get up early and we, you know, they close uh, 16th street all the way off. And, and, you know, as a kid, you got this, you, you were actually edu you got better education walking up 16th street before the Indianapolis 500 than you probably did from your, the birds and the bees from your parents or an education from schooling. Yes, you did. I'm, and we'll just leave it at that. Right. <laughs> yes, we will. So what was your, what was your favorite sport growing up or what sport did you get into? Or were you a multi-sport uh, child? And um, uh, it, uh, did your parents back you with that? Did you have any yeah. brothers and sisters? I know that's a loaded question. Yeah, no, that's fine. Uh, I have one sister uh, who's a year and a half younger than me. And uh, she, uh, basically I played everything. I played football as a kid, basketball. I loved baseball probably more than anything else. Uh, my dad coached my baseball team um, for a number of years. He actually threw me out of a game once uh, because I got really angry. I was so, man, I was so competitive. I, I got really angry when I struck out. I was not a good hitter. I was a good pitcher and a good catcher, but not a very good hitter. Uh, but he threw me out of the game for a temper tantrum, and he should have. I mean, you know, good for him. Um, but and then I played basketball oh, just one year as a freshman uh, or I'm sorry, as a sophomore at Ben Davis and our team at that point, and this is what kind of transitioned me into, into broadcasting. Our team was so good. We had three sophomores starting on the starting five, my sophomore year, uh, Mike Massing uh, who went on to play at uh, university of Evansville uh, Tom Downard, who played at U Indy, and then Cale Funkhauser as well. Uh, three sophomores starting on that team. And by the time we were seniors, we were one of the top teams in the state. So I kind of knew as a sophomore that this whole basketball thing wasn't going to work out. And I was probably going to be better off doing the games on the radio, which is what I ended up doing. And ben Davis was one of the Ben Davis. Would you put Ben Davis and North Central kind of in the same, uh, you know, really, you know, of course, uh, North Central being a, a county school, but uh, pretty good sized schools. Yes. Uh, ben Davis, North Central, Carmel Tech uh, back in those days were, I think, the, the, the big four here in the Indianapolis area. I know we always had big, big rivalry with Pike across the township line. Uh, and, 
so yeah, those were and Warren Central, of course, on the other side of town. We JV team played Warren on a number of occasions, and they were kind of a crosstown rival for us as well. So when did the light bulb in your head go off that you wanted to do broadcasting? That's really easy. Uh, I could probably look the data up and find it specifically, but it was the end of my first semester as a sophomore at Ben Davis. And, you know, like I said, I was, I was on the basketball team and I walked into my guidance counselor's office, Rosie Leedy. And she said, Hey, you need to be thinking about next semester schedule and you need an elective. I said, okay, what you got? And she said, well, cause I had no idea. I had no clue. I wasn't, remember I told you, I wasn't thinking broadcasting at that point. Um, but she said, you know what, you've got a, you've got a really nice speaking voice, I think. And you ought to try this radio class that we have here at Ben Davis. And I thought, okay, that's cool. So I signed up for it, didn't think about it. And so the first day of the spring semester, January of 1980, sometime, I walked into my Radio One class at at Ben Davis, and I opened the door and walked in, and I look over here, there's a, there's a couple of turntables and a mic and a couple of loudspeakers and a little audio board, and over here, there's the same thing, basically practice stations to learn how to be a DJ, and I felt like Andy Dufresne in, in Shawshank, I just, ah, you know. I thought, man, this is so cool. This is what I really dig. This is awesome. This is what I want to do. And it was like that day. And so I've, I've told that story from the stage. I've told that story on other interviews. Um, and that I, I'm, I'm really, really thankful to God for, for his guidance there. And for me paying attention to what Rosie Leedy was telling me, because that was that was a real huge turning point for me and and my career and so that that was that was it now now i may not be talking intelligently but uh, they still have that program and i think it is does john easter do a lot of stuff with that at uh, uh ben davis yes he does i haven't been over there in a while um but that he does and uh as the last i knew and i believe this is still correct dennis goins uh my good friend who used to work at wish tv 8 as a photographer heads up part of their television side too their visual uh, audio visual side so yeah that and john's been there quite a while uh, for quite a number of years now awesome so so with did going through Ben Davis, going through the radio program, what, where did you want to go to college? What, what did you, you know, was Butler your first choice? What other opportunities did you think of doing it? And why did you go to Butler? No, I, I, Butler wasn't my first choice, uh, probably my second choice, but I really didn't, you know, look, I didn't pay really close attention to, to the whole college thing when I was getting ready to go to college. I think I applied to Butler in, you know, April or May of my senior year in in high school. So I was, I guess I was lucky to get in. Uh, you know, we just didn't have, I didn't have the, the tools at my disposal to, to, you know, maybe look 
at a lot of different schools for broadcasting. There was no Google, you know, uh, and and I had a I'm sure I had a couple of people tell me about Butler. Dave Calabro, uh, who was a year ahead of me at Ben Davis, went there. His brother, Kevin, uh, we, you know, has been a longtime voice of the NBA uh, and Dave went there. And so Dave, you know, highly recommended it. So I applied to Butler and made it in. And, and I'm really glad I did because the opportunity at that time, the opportunities for kids at Butler uh, for internships and to make connections and network, I guess it was networking before it was popularly called networking back in the early to mid eighties. The opportunities at Butler were, were better than a lot of other schools in smaller communities. What sports did you call while you were at Butler? Uh, basketball and, uh, football. Uh, and I'm trying to think, I don't, I don't believe we did, uh, anything else. I may, I may have done a swim meet at one time, but I think it was just basketball and football and maybe a a baseball game every once in a while. But the, the, the two big focuses for us were, uh, the team sports, basketball, football. Uh, did you get the opportunity to meet or get to know Tony Hinkle? I met him a couple times. I did an interview with him once. Uh, and as I recall, it was after Butler made the NIT in 1985, uh, and went down and got clobbered at Bloomington. I call that game and, you know, Butler, that was, it was the best season they'd had in a number of years. And we were thrilled to make the NIT and go get hammered. Um, but yeah, I remember interviewing him very briefly in one of the back offices after Butler had, uh, clinched an opportunity to go to the NIT. I don't believe we knew at the time that it was going to be, uh, at Bloomington, but, uh, you know, Hinkle was a legend still is obviously everybody knows that. And it was really, it was really a, a pleasure to meet and, and talk to him a couple times. You know, what's interesting about that is six degrees of separation is that, you know, I, I got a book um, that was written about Tony Hinkle and I, I didn't put the two together until I was probably, uh, uh, you know, got the book and read the cover. But Howard Caldwell wrote the book on Tony Hinkle. You got to work with Howard Caldwell. Um that had to be, it, it, it's interesting that six degrees of separation and, and, and Howard Caldwell, you know, loving and went, went to Butler and loving it enough to, to do a book on Tony Hinkle. Yeah, Howard was, Howard was a terrific guy and always had seats, you know, four or five rows up uh, for as long as he was able to go to the games and an ardent supporter of the Bulldogs, obviously. And he and I shared uh, a number of conversations about that. When, during our time together at Channel 6. And he loved Butler. He loved uh, the whole Butler way before it was really popularly known as the Butler way. And uh, he was just a genuine guy. I mean, what you saw, I've told people this before, what you saw from Howard on television when you watched, as I did as a kid growing up, is exactly how he was in real life. What was it like to uh, call that basketball game in Assembly Hall? Was that kind of a, a goosebumps or were you kind of, uh, you know, like a kid in a candy store or, you know, getting to go to IU and you're calling a basket, an NIT game for, you know, the Bulldogs? 
you know, it was, um, I, I really didn't have, I don't think I had goosebumps. Quite frankly, it was kind of like, kind of like the movie uh, Hoosiers when they, when Gene Hackman uh, takes the kids in and they measure the hoop and they say, it's just, just another basketball arena. Okay. So IU plays here, big deal. You know, I'm over that in about five minutes, let's get to the game. And uh, you know, I knew that Indiana or that uh, Butler's chances were not great, but yet my job was to, you know, describe what was going on. And it was, it was cool walking in that place for the first time. Yeah. But then you put it out of your mind and you just try to focus on what's happening in front of you. You know, what a great job Butler has done maintaining a, uh, that basketball program, even after Brad Stevens has left, What a, it's a, uh, you know, it, it, it's, IU, Purdue, Butler, you know, poor ball state, Indiana state, and some of the other schools in the state get lost behind because Butler and, and has maintained that consistency. Yeah. And for a number of years, you couldn't say IU, Purdue, Butler, it would be Butler and then IU and Purdue down there somewhere. Um, And I, a few years ago, Butler, I forget what the stat was. I have to go look it up, but Butler for a number of years had the winningest program in the state period. And, uh, you know, it's, as you know, Billy, it's all about cycles. I mean, you know, Butler's had a couple of off years. I'm confident that Thad's going to bring them back. He's a fantastic coach and a great guy. They're going to get back to where they once were. Um, and we see a resurgence from both Indiana and Purdue. I mean, Purdue's been solid for a number of years uh, with Matt up there. And this team they had this year, Yep, they've lost a few games, and their number one seed might be in jeopardy. But, boy, I tell you what, <laughs> they are a solid, solid team. But it goes in cycles. I mean, four, five, six, seven years from now, you know, it, it might it might not be the same, but then it'll they'll they'll bring it back. So it, this is a this is a great, uh, obviously a great state to have quality basketball teams and you know even ball state is going to be there again one of these days i'm sure and notre dame as well um so you're so you're at butler what uh you know what contacts do you make what 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 do you decide that you want to do with your life while you're at butler well uh i i thought it was going to be you know radio sports uh, radio sportscasting, whether it play by play or as a sports commentator, uh, not necessarily, or maybe doing both, uh, talk show, whatever the case may be. Um, and then I decided to do an internship at channel six in 1980 summer of 86, because I thought, you know what, I haven't really done a lot of television. We didn't have a very strong TV program at the time at Butler. So I thought, you know what, I, I'd like to get some some television under my belt. And so uh, I ended up interning at Channel 6, and I loved it and got a job. My first job was over in Illinois uh, and then uh, moved to South Bend, actually the Elkhart station up there for four months and one day, literally, before I came down back to Indianapolis in January of 1989. And, and and what is your first job in Indianapolis? Uh, in TV, my my first job was actually at WRTV. Uh, I came down here when Brian Hammonds left uh, to 
I believe at that point he went to the golf channel or maybe to Fox 59. I can't remember exactly which, but he, he had left the station in uh, late 1988 and they hired me. And I, my first day January 11th, 1989. Now was, uh, was Ed Sorensen, the sports director while, while you were there at WRTV? Absolutely. Absolutely. He's the guy I interned with and, and he's the guy that fought hard uh, to get me the job there. So, you know, big kudos to Ed. And is he still working? I think he's out here in Texas, correct? Yeah, he, the last I heard, he was in Waco. Uh, he was on the air there for a year, year and a half, maybe two years. Uh, and then he decided that, I think he decided he liked retirement again and and decided not to be on the air. Uh, but he... Um, uh, he, he, he got, I, I, I can't tell you how many years he was off the air, but got that itch again, I think, and, and decided to dip his toes back in the water. And I think he's, he may be out for good and that's okay. That's his choice. And that's, you know, more power to him. Well, he's got the, he gets viewed probably once a day on YouTube asking uh, Bob Knight questions. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> <laughs> when when do the Indiana Pacers come into your life? The the Pacers, um, of course, you know, I, I grew up as we talked about earlier. <clears throat> excuse me, listening to them and watching them, uh, attending their games at at the Coliseum and at Market Square Arena. Um, but I was actually in between jobs. This is after I was let go at at Channel Six, and I was I was freelancing for Fox, uh, Fox Network, during the playoffs in uh, the spring of 1998. So this would have been during the the Pacers and the Bulls uh, series, and I was covering them, and I was sitting next to uh, Tim Edwards, who used to work for the Pacers. And he kind of he kind of gave me a little bit of a of a hint, and he said, "Hey, you ought to you ought to contact them about about doing something for the TV side." And he kind of encouraged me to do that. I had no idea what was happening. Uh, and again, this is during the during the playoffs. So I contacted uh, their their director of broadcast at the time, a guy named Larry Mago, and I said. I said, hey, listen, I'm just letting you know that I'm out there. I'm available, um, interested, whatever. I mean, I, I'll mop the floors. I'll coil mic cables, whatever you need me to do. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another. And they brought me in to host their uh, Pacers full court show, which was kind of a, ma a weekly magazine show. And then do the pregame and postgame and, and the halftime shows and a lot of interviews during during the uh, during the game sideline reporting, as we call it, the interesting thing is my first year with the team was the lockout season uh, that we affectionately call the 1999-99 NBA season because there was no fall of 1998, and I think the first game uh, happened in February, uh, maybe around Valentine's Day, I think, in 1999 ended up playing 50 games that year. So that was my first year with the team. You know, let, let's go back because uh, you uh, have been the host of the Meekum Auction Show. Did I get that correct? 
Yes. Since 2008. I have a friend named Adam Hamby who has a, a YouTube channel called The Hoosier Garage, which is like the most unique automotive channel with an Indiana pop culture twist. And uh, what was your first car growing up? And are you into muscle cars or, you know, just classic cars? Everything. Uh, I, I, my first, my first real car that, uh, that I would call my own was a 72 Chevelle, which I had for a little while. Um, and you know, for me, it wasn't, it wasn't something that I, you know, hopped up or did anything to, it was basic transportation. At that. <laughs> and, and, you know, my, my family, I mean, we were, we lived a very modest lifestyle. And so I didn't have uh, the access to cars that a lot of guys did uh, when, when we were growing up, but I've always enjoyed cars. I've always loved cars. Uh, and I just never had the means to, to become a, a serious collector. But then when Meekin came calling in 2008, uh, you know, it's, it's like, okay, this is going to be fun. I got a lot of work to do to, to study and learn as much as I can about, about some of the things that a lot of people don't know about some of the inner details and, and the, you know, the mechanics. I, I mean, I can do some things on a car. I couldn't do a full engine swap. Like some guys can do it in their sleep. But I have always enjoyed cars, and and do I like muscle cars? Yeah, but my bucket list includes cars that aren't necessarily muscle cars as well. For example, uh, a Porsche 911 of any year. That's always been one of my bucket list cars. 57 Bel Air uh, is not a muscle car, but those are fun, and they're you know they're always different. Every time we see one, they're just a little bit different. Whether you know, it's a, a different engine, a different paint scheme, whether it's really tricked out a, a super high-end pro build or whether they brought it back to stock. Uh, if it's all original, we see those as well. So yeah, I like, I like all kinds of different cars. Uh, we kind of had the uh, joke cars when I was growing up. So we owned a 1974 Gremlin GT. I think that uh, I don't think you can allowed to do that, but it, it was a Gremlin GT. We also, uh, my grandfather would take me to Indianapolis Indians games down on uh, to Bush Stadium in a Pacer. Oh yeah! And then my senior year, we decided to uh, go for the one to watch, which was an Encore. Wow, boy, you were you were you were living your best life there, baby. But my first car was a 1966 Bonneville 389 four barrel. Oh. And they, it's one of those where you could put a double bed in the trunk and shut the trunk. Yes, absolutely. So what, so, happened, so, to what happened to that car? Um, I, I threw a rod. I patched it up. I sold it to a friend who's no longer my friend because the rod threw again and he tried to get a hold of me and I never called him back. Oh, dear. Well, he'll be the guest next week on the podcast. Right? <laughs> apparently, apparently uh, your phone's ringing now. <laughs> Tell us about Meekum. How, how did that come about? And uh, uh, just tell us a few stories about, uh, you know, and it's interesting because it looks like you went out of your comfort zone to to do Meekum, but, but you're learning something at the same time. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely right. Uh, 
it was a completely a God thing. Once again, just like with my guidance counselor in high school, I'm sitting on the couch in my living room in March of 2008 and my phone rings and the, the caller ID says, Terry Lingner. And if you know who Terry Lingner is, you know that he was one of the guys who was in very early at ESPN. He's one of the originators of Saturday Night Thunder, Thursday Night Thunder, did a lot of racing, and he still uh, it does a lot of things in, in uh, the television world. Um, very, very well-respected and an absolute fantastic gentleman and human being. Anyway, so uh, the, my caller ID says Terry Lingner. And I look at the phone, and when Terry calls, you do two things. Number one, you answer the phone. Number two, you say yes to whatever it is he's going to ask you to do. And I said, hey, Terry, what's up? And I'm not kidding, Billy. He said, hey, Scott, what are you doing tomorrow night? <laughs> that was it. I said, well, uh, and actually I was uh, – on that particular Saturday night, uh, I was emceeing a fundraiser for the great organization called Indy Reads uh, downtown at the Hyatt. And I said, well, I'm emceeing this uh, thing tomorrow night. Um, so I, I really, I need to honor that. He said, that's fine. What about next Saturday? I said, uh, nothing. What do you have? And he said, well, I've got this car show that I'd like you to host. I said, okay, cool. I'm in. Let's do it. And so the next night before my before my uh, commitment at the Hyatt, I went over to the fairgrounds, looked around a little bit, met some people, saw some unbelievable cars. And uh, then the next week was our first, was my first show with the auction. There had been uh, a couple of shows prior to that. And uh, there some things that that happened that I'm not privy to. But Terry just decided to call me and ask me if I wanted to jump in. And I said, yes. And I've missed two shows since then in March of 2008. So we're in our 16th year. I missed one event because of my daughter's wedding. And I missed another event because of illness a couple of years ago. So that's that's it. And it's been a pretty good streak. And we're talking about international exposure. This is watched all the way. This is watched uh, uh, around the world. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how many, uh, I mean, anybody in the world can get it. If you if you go to the Motor Trend, uh, Motor Trend website, motortrend.com, you can sign up for the app. It's, you know, maybe four bucks a month or something like that. And you can watch on demand, which is so popular now. But even when we were on uh, NBC, uh, we were on the air in Norway, I think, and uh, Argentina and couple of other European countries, I want to say, um, and in Canada as well, I believe. So it does have, it does have quite a reach and, and it's, people are fascinated all over the world with American and, and certainly European classic cars. Is that set up? And I'm talking just, I, I should have done a little bit more research. Is that set up by season? Do you have seasons within that program? Not really officially seasons. Uh, our big event is in January in Kissimmee, Florida, which literally starts right after the first of the year. And we go, uh, February is kind of a, for lack of a better word, it's kind of an off month for the, the automotive side. Um, 
but then we pick back up in March, April, and we have a couple of events in 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 a couple of different months. So we average maybe an event and and a half per month if you average it out over the whole year. But once once December is finished and we're wrapped up for the calendar year, uh, we're you know ready to go for Kissimmee uh, in just a couple of weeks after that. And I will say this too: the planning for these events especially Kissimmee, the planning for that event starts at the end of summer, basically. Uh, and I can, I can promise you that they're already laying the groundwork for Kissimmee of 2024 next January. Who are some of your favorite people to, and it could be on uh, uh, the automotive show, but who are some of the favorite people that you've gotten to spend time with on air? Or who are some of those people like I will do it occasionally. And I know, you know, everybody I've been told that everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time, just like I do. But who are the, you're like, wow, I'm 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 like I, I found a picture of you with uh, Jay Leno. Like it, that, there's sometimes where I have to get over that. I'm actually talking to somebody who I was raised up with as a kid or I have a lot of respect for as a kid. Who are some of those moments for you through your career? Um, that's a really good point. Uh, what you say about putting your pants on just like everybody else. Uh, I tell people often, Hey, I'm a regular guy with a weird job or with a lot of weird jobs, if you will. Um, uh, Michael Jordan, um, uh, of course, any, anybody on our team on the Pacers team back in those days, uh, I remember, almost 30 years ago, sitting down to interview Jack Nicholas uh, at the golf club of Indiana, when he was actually there caddying for his son, who was trying to make the PGA tour back in those days. And of all the people that you have this preconceived notion that, that Jack of all the people that you think might throw you attitude, I learned very quickly that Jack was not one of those guys. He was the most humble he didn't want to talk about himself. He'd love talking about his grandkids and some of the other work that he was doing and love talking about caddying for his son. Um, but he was just delight, absolutely delightful uh, to sit down and talk with. I, I was a little nervous with Jack just because, I mean, he's perhaps the greatest golfer that, that of our time uh, before Tiger came along uh, and you know, Tiger's given him, given him a run for his money, but I, I still have to go with Jack based on, you know, major championships and, and, you know, six green jackets, but I've, I've interviewed a lot of people and I can't really say that anybody really made me freak out, nervous, sweat, you know, because I try to be prepared when I go into it, I know what I'm, I know what I want to talk to them about. And I try to make them feel at ease because a lot of times these people have been interviewed to death. And I just, I, you know, I just want to be me and just let them be them and have fun with it. Uh, so that's, that's kind of how I approach it. Um, but Jack put me at ease immediately. 
You know, I, I found another photo in doing research on you of uh, you, uh, of course, you know, uh, interviewing and asking David Letterman questions. What was what was that like experience like? And is that still in your mind? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, Dave didn't want to be interviewed. And I had a solution for that. I just kept talking to him, you know, and I had a little bit of an advantage because we were live on the on the big screens at the Speedway. And he he knew that he could see that. Um, and you know, he didn't, he, he could have turned and walked away, but again, I was prepared. I knew what I wanted to ask him and I played right along, you know, he said something goofy and I said something goofy right back. I don't remember the conversation. I I'm presume that it still exists on tape somewhere, but, um, you know, just a, if he wants, if he wants to make a smart comment, fine, that's cool. That's what he does. And I loved that uh, watch. I remember, I remember watching him even on his morning show back in the day and actually got to, got to see his show in person one time when I was in college. So that was a big deal. And that was a lot of fun for me. And uh, again, not nervous, just ready. And, you know, he said, I don't want to be interviewed. And I said, well, come on, Dave, you know, there's, you know, here we are at the 500 and there's thousands of hundreds of thousands of people here. And I just kept right on going and he was, he was fine with it. You, you know how athletes stretch and um, uh, get their mindset for a game. What is that for you before doing uh, uh, a or before uh, going on air with somebody? Is there something that uh, uh, calms you or that you will do to kind of, you know, is it a breathing technique to get you ready for what you do? Is there, is there something you do or you've been doing it so long now that boom, you just go right into it? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say there's any technique um, or any breathing technique that I use or any, any real secret to it. Uh, I, I have been doing it a long time and I don't get nervous. Uh, it's funny, my, my good friend, Jake Query, uh, he, he's fine talking on the radio to, you know, thousands and thousands of people because he's in that studio, much like we are here, just you and I talking, it, it's him and his co-host. But if he gets up in front of a big crowd of people, he'll be the first one to admit that he totally freaks out. He is not comfortable with that. I don't have that problem. Um, it's not a problem. I mean, I love Jake. He's, he's a great friend of mine, but I've I've never really had an issue with speaking in front of people or speaking to a lot of people through a camera lens, uh, if you will. But how I get ready is, you know, preparing ahead of time, knowing as much about a lot of the vehicles that we're going to see as I can, uh, and and just being ready and and paying attention to what's happening in front of me because a lot of times the unexpected will happen. Uh, and just being aware and, and, uh, you know, being comfortable with, with the lineup that we have and knowing what's coming up, that kind of puts me in, in a comfort zone and, and allows me to kind of relax, especially when there are massive collections of cars and massive individual cars that are coming uh, to the auction block. For example, a few years ago, we had the bullet Mustang from, uh, the, the Steve McQueen film. And that was that was one of the biggest moments in Meekum history, if not the biggest moment in Meekum history. But the story had been developing with us for a number of months, almost a year, actually. And uh, so when the time came, 
you know, we were all kind of on edge, but there was a certain calmness there too, uh, because we had known this event was coming. We knew about the car. We knew the story of the car and we were just waiting for the, the event to unfold in front of us. Yeah. And Steve McQueen, another Indiana, uh, uh, Beach Grove, I think native, right? I believe so. Yeah. Um, so I, I see the base in your background. And of course I think of Johnny Cash and the Tennessee two. <laughs> and uh, I think of Scotty Moore and uh, I can't remember the uh, bass player with Elvis Presley. When, when, when does the interest in music start? Well, that, that was uh, very early uh, before anything in broadcasting. I grew up in a very musical household. I'm thankful to God for that. Uh, my mother played piano and organ for many, many years in the church where I grew up. My dad was the choir director. Uh, I sang in the youth choir and then uh, played bass for a little while when I when I was a uh, freshman, eighth grade and freshman. I started playing when I was in the seventh grade. So and I started a uh, band at my school in the seventh grade as well. And I'd had classical piano lessons for seven years uh, leading up to that. So music was a, a major part of our house. And uh, I've always I've always said that if the broadcasting thing hadn't worked out, I would have been in the music industry in some fashion, whether as a musician, I play, I do play professionally. Uh, occasionally I have a, a jazz band. I've played in a couple of big bands before I do every once in a while, a, a record project, uh, help on a record project. But I've always said that if it wasn't broadcasting, it would have been music. And I still I still stay very active in doing that. Uh, I don't practice as much as I should. Uh, and I think everybody can can say that, perhaps. But yeah, ever since I was a little kid. What kind of what 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 is kind of your favorite music? I mean, were you were you a rock and roll kid or you, you know? You know, uh, I, I grew up hearing a lot of church music in my house and uh, a lot of classical music. So that's, that's how I grew up. And, uh, you know, I, I listened to the pop radio at the time as a kid, you know, we talked about earlier. And then when I was in college at Butler is, well, take that back. Uh, my first exposure to jazz was, when Chuck Mangione's Feel So Good record came out and that that song got a lot of airplay. And so I had to buy the record and I thought, wow, this is cool. But what I didn't understand was that that three minute, three and a half minute song was actually a cut down and edited version of the seven or eight minute song that's on the LP. Right. And there's only six songs on that Feel So Good record. And I'm thinking six songs. This is a rip off. Well, what I didn't understand was you know, you, you, in the world of jazz, you can expand on, on the melody and you play and everybody takes a solo. And then you come back to the head of the song, the very beginning and that sort of thing. And, and then when I got into, to, to school at Butler in 1982, our production director, Mark Dunham, who went to Southern Illinois university and is a good friend of mine, um, got me hooked on jazz and had me host a jazz show at Butler at the uh, radio station there and uh, kind of be the sort of the music director after a while pulling tunes and 
you know, laying out some options for the the people who would would host the show. So fast forward, my first love uh, these days and for a long time has been jazz. Love that genre. Uh, it's such a cool uh, thing to do live when you're you're making music, you're making it up. It's it, you're creating art on the spot in the context of a quartet, a trio, even a duet, a big band, whatever the case may be. Your voice, I mean, it, it, it's soothing, it's it's calming. Do you do a lot of voiceover work? Do you get a lot of calls to do voiceover work? How does that work? Well, thank you, first of all. Uh, and I would say that I do some voiceover work. I would love to do more. Uh, and I, I do have, I have a couple of agencies that I work with, one in Chicago and one in San Francisco. <clears throat> and I audition, uh, I audition for a lot of things. Uh, but we would all, I think if you would ask anybody who does voiceover for, for a living or a part-time living, whatever the case may be, we would all say that we would love to be doing more. We'd love to be working more. Um, and it's just a matter of finding the right fit. And <clears throat> excuse me, there are there are clearly some projects that I'm not the right fit for, you know, but others I would be the right fit for. And so it's finding that that spot. And uh, it's really subjective because, you know, uh, if 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 somebody is, um, you know, auditioning or or getting ready to hire somebody. There could be a, a committee or a room full of five people. And, you know, if one person says, eh, I don't really like that guy, then he's out. Even though that guy could be perfectly excellent. Uh, and it's so subjective. And that's one of the, the hurdles for me is to, you know, you, you send in your audition and whether or not you get called, you don't worry about it. You just put it out of your mind and move to the next audition. If you are fortunate enough, to get a call back, great. If you're fortunate enough to be hired, even better. I love when that happens. Um, but yes, to your point, I I would be more than happy. If anybody has a project that needs a, a voice for it, uh, I would be happy to audition. And like I said, maybe I'm the good fit, maybe I'm not, and that's okay. Do you still work with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra? Yes. Absolutely. In fact, I don't have it right here. Uh, I, there's a script somewhere here that I have to record as soon as we're done for their Discovery Concert Series. Uh, but yes, this summer, the, the Discovery Concert Series is for the school kids that go down to the, to the Hilbert Circle Theater and kind of get an experience, maybe for the first time, about classical music in the theater. And they gear it really toward the youngsters, which is a fabulous program. But yes, uh, I will be, uh, Lord willing, out at Connor Prairie again. This will be my 20th summer hosting wow. Symphony on the Prairie with the Indianapolis Symphony and, and Kroger sponsoring it again this year. And if you have not been out there, you are missing something big time. It's absolutely beautiful. And the acoustics are actually absolutely fantastic. It is. Uh, and it doesn't, it almost doesn't matter 
who the band is, who the performers are. I mean, obviously classical music and the, the symphony is a huge draw, especially the July 4th concert, uh, uh, the pops concerts that are out there. But regardless, it's an event. It's such a cool event. As you mentioned, Billy, you're out there, you're under the stars. It's wide open. You know, some people, some people do it all the way. I mean, they'll, they'll get a table and a whole spread and have it catered or bring in their own food and a grill or whatever the case may be. And some folks just bring a couple of lawn chairs and throw a blanket out there and that's it. And that's okay. And they love every minute of it as well. So if you've never been out to Symphony on the Prairie, uh, by all means, we would love to see you out there sometime this summer. Scott, what's what's it like being in broadcast? Is, is there a fraternity to being in broadcasting? Like I picture you, Dick Ray, Lee Owens, um, uh, uh, you know, all these Don Hine. I, I, I picture all of you guys meeting once a year in this big cafeteria and talking about your life in broadcasting. I, and I know that's a silly assumption, but is do you do you get do you maintain a relationship with uh, uh, a fellow um, uh, broadcasters? Yeah, actually, uh, that's a that's an interesting question. We do on some on some levels, and and sometimes we don't. <clears throat> uh, I'm I stay in touch with Dick Ray uh, on occasion. Uh, Daryl Burnett, who used to work at at Channel 13, is a good friend. He lives up in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Now, his wife actually used to work for Mecham Auctions a number of years ago. Um, but I stay in touch with an, a, another guy, Dave Shore, who interned here in Indy and went on to do great things with the L.A. Lakers and ESPN. Uh, Kevin Gregory, of course, my high school buddy from Ben Davis, uh, he and I called basketball games and volleyball games when we were in high school together, and we stay in touch quite a bit. Um, and, and Calabro, Dave first, who formerly at channel six and, and we've gotten together, uh, we get together occasionally to just, you know, have dinner or whatever. And just, we don't even necessarily talk about broadcasting, just other stuff, you know, what's happening in our lives. And, and you know what, it's, 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 uh, we need to do more of that actually. Um, the last time I, I recall doing it was after, uh, Bob Jenkins passed away uh, not too long ago. A lot of us got together over at Union Jacks in Speedway. Dave uh, Calabro first was there uh, and some others. Uh, I think Jake Query was there as well. So we do that every once in a while. And, and you know, sometimes it's just uh, a text message here and there to just kind of catch up and, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Uh, but yeah, that that would be that would be a lot of fun to to make that a more regular occurrence. You worked for WTTV for a little while also? Yes, actually I did. Uh, I was the booth announcer there for a year or so when I was in college. And that was actually my first appearance on live television at Channel 4 when Chuck Marlowe took vacation and they needed somebody to do sports and they just kind of walked down the hall and asked me if I'd be interested. And I said, absolutely. And so that's, uh, that was my first time on live television. You know, one of my, you know, it, I do the interviews I do because I have memories and I have questions about stuff and I want them answered. And, uh, 
Um, and I like to share some experiences. And we used to make fun of a broadcaster, not make fun, but we would always love the way he would always end it. And I would always, I would always ex over exaggerate it, but it was Derek Thomas. And I would just love go and I'd look at my dad and I go, Derek Thomas for the news. Channel six. Yes. And you had just the right amount of pause in there. <laughs> Take that too short. That was that was Derek's signature. I mean, great guy, great reporter, and that was his signature. I don't know where you'd have to ask him where he came up with that. I don't know, uh, but it it stuck, and he stuck with it, and good for him. Yeah. Uh, so tell me a little bit about: Are you a good golfer? Or are you a good fisherman? I I love to fish. I would say I'm a mm, well. It's kind of. Uh, I can generally go out and in, in on any body of water and catch something. Am I a good fisherman? Uh, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, am I a good golfer? Occasionally, I can be. I'm working on my game as we speak. Uh, my goal this year, I have a couple goals this year, which will go un, unmentioned here. Uh, but I've been working with my good friend. Uh, and actually, I'll give him a plug. Uh, he's at the Golf Club of Indiana and their Golf Performance Academy out there. His name is Tony Day, uh, and he is the two-time Indiana Teacher of the Year, the Indiana uh, PGA Teacher of the Year. And he's, uh, I've known Tony for a long, long time, and we're really good friends, and and he's an excellent teacher. And I was just out there yesterday trying to, trying to finally, after all these years, figure out, you know, how to, how to, how to swing the golf club rather than hit the golf ball and i had um uh, i had both of my hips replaced in 2021 so last summer was a little bit iffy this summer i'm i'm really anxious to hit it hard and and really make some make some you know bona fide improvements in my in my golf game this summer you know you have so many passions scott and um, you know, uh, uh, golf, fishing, music, uh, broadcasting. Um, how, how do you spread that out? How do you how do you kind of keep all of that? Don't how do you pay attention to each of those passions that you have? They they all get their their time, uh, and you know, it's funny if you if you don't use it, you lose it with music, with golf, with broadcasting, whatever the case may be. Obviously my broadcasting and my, my voiceover career, that, that takes priority. And I do that with regularity. I have to, I have to keep on that, keep fresh. Uh, I have to do the research. I have to, you know, stay relevant with what's going on in the car world, with what's going on in the voiceover world um, and, and stay on that. The other two things, you know, golf and, and fishing and even cycling or whatever, um, uh, and music, uh, you know, I practice, but you know, Hey, when it's time to focus on, on the car side, uh, that the music gets put away for a while. Uh, and when I'm, when I'm working on a couple charts for a gig and I know I don't have an event for a couple of weeks, I'll, I'll work on that, on those charts, uh, for the gig. But, it's just it's just kind of partitioning everything out and and doing the best you can 
um, to, to, to give each area the necessary attention. And like I said, the, the career stuff, the, the long-term stuff, um, you know, that, that gets the most attention as it should. The great thing about it is I'll, I'll be able to do, you know, voiceover for many years, hopefully, as long as people keep hiring me, uh, and I'll be able to play music for, for a long, long time as well. Uh, and so it's, it's just prioritizing what I need to do right now. Uh, I'm already thinking about our next event at the end of March. Uh, it's a, it's almost a month away, but I'm already looking at, at cars that are coming up. Um, in fact, we've got a 1958, uh, Mercedes-Benz 300 SL Gullwing that's coming up. It's green. The only one they ever made in green. You believe that? It's true. Are you a grandfather? I am. What do they call you? I have one, uh, grandkid. Uh, his name is Judah and he calls me Papa. And that was on him. I, my daughter, my daughter one day said, can you say hi? <clears throat> can you say hi to grandpa? And he said, Papa. And I thought, that's it. That's it. I'm, I'm, t- I'm holding him to that. And he'll be three in May. Yeah. Yeah. You, for your grandchildren, you can have a script for them, but they're going to, uh, they're going to be, uh, they're going to improvise. They're going to do it their own way, man. And it's the best way. We'll ride along with it. Absolutely. So Scott Hoke, what do you, you said uh, uh, here in a month, uh, you go back to uh, filming for um, the automotive show and yep. uh, what, what else do you have upcoming? Uh, I have a, a trade show that I'm doing in Las Vegas in uh, a couple of weeks, actually a week, uh, two weeks from this week um, for uh, it's part of the construction expo con expo. I'm representing a company out there called uh, Develon. Uh, and after that, right back to the auctions. And we have India, we have, uh, uh, Glendale, Arizona, Houston, Texas, right after that in April. And then we get ready for the month of May for us is our second biggest event at the fairgrounds, which begins on March or I'm sorry, May the 12th and runs through the 20th at the Indiana state fairgrounds. So if you happen to be driving by the state fairgrounds and you see all those gigantic white tents up in the air, that's Meekum. Uh, we'd love to see you. Come on out and enjoy some great cars. And I will say this, it's kind of similar to the to the Connor Prairie thing. It doesn't matter, you know, about the music. It's the, it's the event at Connor Prairie. Meekum is an auction, first and foremost, and, and they're in the business of selling automobiles. <clears throat> but it's also the best car show that you could ever go to that you could ever attend because there's so much stuff that you've probably heard about and seen on TV or didn't even know that it existed. And you're going to see that at a Meekum auction, especially one where there's 3000 cars like Indianapolis. So once we get through with that, then we get into the summertime portion of the schedule and, and we'll keep the pedal to the metal all the way through the end of the year, for sure. Scott Hoke, I kept you long. I could probably keep you longer, but uh, uh, hey, man, my pleasure. I thank you for your time. This was uh, this was outstanding. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Uh, always uh, good to talk with you. And and uh, I see the Tony Hinkle book on the back on the table in the back. 
Uh, so, and I just noticed that a while ago after you were talking about Hink. Uh, but yeah, man, my pleasure anytime. And always, love, I guess it means we're getting old when we're starting to talk about nostalgia, right? Uh, yeah, but I've got one of those old souls. So do you. So it's fantastic. Scott Hope, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Billy. My pleasure.